You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, uh, it's a legal talk, and legal talk is a program that uh, keeps the ummah conscientized in what's happening in that world of legalities. And uh, joining us this evening is our very own Ashraf Isub, senior attorney. Ashraf, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, how are you doing this fine, beautiful uh, Friday evening, Ashraf? Walaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'm very well, alhamdulillah. And also, we are doing very well, especially because very special night, this night of Mehraj, alhamdulillah. You know, uh, we're going to talk a little on that. I always like to tickle you when it comes to your spiritual dimension. And uh, just for the interest of uh, the listeners, you know, our topic uh, this evening, where our senior attorney Ashraf Isuf will be addressing ungodly missions and court cases and uh, much, much more. And uh, you're going to be uh, fascinated. But before we get to an uh, Ashraf has, uh, and I, we have other issues also. But talking about this momentous, beautiful night, I mean, it was this night that ushered in that Salah. It was this night that gave us a different dimensions of heaven and hell. It was this night that no other creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala got so close and closer to the creator than our Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ashraf, give us your dimensions. Well, alhamdulillah, you know, the night means many things. As you've pointed out, where we had the gift of Salah. And then obviously, uh, the stamp of the Prophet being the leader of all the, the Nabi, the Nabi, uh, Nabis, because he led them in prayer. And then, of course, we all know it was a physical journey because, well, you know, the physical journeys and its marks are left even in Aqsa and in the, in the Haram itself. There are apparently two rings still in the haram. I don't know if it's been removed, but those were where the wings of the burak were tied, um, and and they were signified by rings. And if you go to uh, the Al Aqsa Mosque, uh, I'm, I'm told I haven't been there. I'm told that there are similar rings there, and of course there is the physical evidence of the rock. Now, remember. That was still uh, the haram, you know. Salah was the, the salah was established first before the change in the haram came. So that was still Masjid Al-Aqsa was still the haram, the the, the place um, for the Prophet to ascend and descend. Remember, he wasn't the first Nabi to ascend and descend. Sayyidina Isa was also taken up from the precincts of the uh, Aqsa. Now, we have a very important lesson in this whole thing. You see, when the Meccans were laughing at the Prophet's revelation that he went to Aqsa and then from there he went to the seven heavens in one night. In fact, in a split second. They came to Sayyidina Abu Bakr. And they said, you see, what your friend, the Nabi Wasallam, is saying. And Sayyidina Abu Bakr laughed and he said, why should I not believe him? When the man tells me that he receives 
revelation from the unseen. So this thing about flying into the air and things is a lesser miracle than the miracle of the Nabuat and the revelation. I mean, I think that is an incredible reflection of the total trust, not just in friendship, but the trust that the Sahabi had uh, in the Rasul So if there's any takeaway from that, we have to take the fact that there was utmost respect, trust and loyalty from the Sahaba around the Nabi Because I can tell you, if anyone makes claims like that, let's say somebody says they went to the moon and came back. Really, with all the scientific evidence that we have and all the abilities of sending rockets there and back and this and that, people will still question you. Let's say I say tomorrow, ah, you know what, Shafat, I went to the space station. You're going to tell me how I went, what I wore, how did I breathe. You know what I'm saying? But here's a stamp of utmost trust and loyalty. I think that is an incredible lesson. Of course, from small, we've been told how um, the Prophet went and he was taken by Burak. And then Burak came to a point and he couldn't go anymore. And then the angels asked, has he been, who is it? And he has he been sent for? Uh, and then they proceeded to admit him through each each level. And then ultimately, Shafat, uh, I think the narration is he was within two bow lengths. Um, so, so that would refer to an archer's bow and not like bowing down, right? And then granting, having been granted the audience, of course, Allah in his might, um, you know, no human being, including the story we know Sayyidina Musa asked to see Allah and he couldn't see him with the naked eye. And But here's the Rasul Sallallahu admitted in the innermost sanctuary and Allah addresses him and he gives him all the lessons we know about what he saw on the way up. And then we know whether it's true or not. When he came down, Sayyidina Musa said, your people won't do it, ask for a reduction, etc. And in a way, even if it's true, that means your five salah is worth 50. Uh, because that is what Allah had, had put a value to, the amount of uh, times we should pray. But anyway, you know, I'm not uh, learned in this area. Those are some of the things that I've got over the years. I think for me it was extremely helpful to read two versions. Um, you see, there's a book by Qadi Ayad. It's called Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah. And it is a, a really a ancient text. I think it's about 1300 years old. And it is full of, it is full of, uh, you know, beautiful words on on not just, the, I mean, the opening chapters is basically, and it is available in English, by the way, Shabbat, and it is mentioned in the Beshti Zewar. 
So if people want it, it's called Muhammad the Messenger of Allah by Qadi Ayad. And there, you know, you would read um, of the Miraj. But, but more stunningly, you know, you actually see how the, the Nabi was approached by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how the Nabi asked us to approach um, our Allah. So it's a very important text, and I, and I think because it is such an ancient text, um, it's well worth looking at. The other one that I found quite simplistic, not simplistic in the sense that it's a, but easy to read and digest, uh, is the Muatta of Imam Malik. So uh, you would you'd get a little bit on the Miraj there as well. That's just for you know people's further reading, Shafat. Zakala for that. Uh, now, you know, when we were at school, uh, Ashraf, uh, he, there was this Dante guy. He wrote a poem called Divine Comedy. Now, I don't know. We were green at that time. You know, we were not like, we didn't know that this guy was actually taking a dig at the Mirage. You know, we didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know that. I mean, until, you know, as we grew up and uh, as we became more conscientized. What about you? When you did that poem, uh, Divine Comedy, what, did you know that this guy was... Uh, Having a dig at uh, at, at, at our prophet. Uh... No, it's the first I hear of it. But I mean, they haven't stopped. <laughs> I mean, it's been like this from the start, Shabbat. And it continues, you see. You see, Shabbat, I said about loyalty, right? The companion, Hazrat Abu Bakr, saw the Rasul of Allah, that is through his eyes. Abu Jahal saw Muhammad ibn Abdullah. He never saw the Nabi. You know, it's all it's it's all about how you see things. So people have never stopped their mischief and attacks. But it doesn't matter because the Prophet has outweighed all of that. I mean, he was a mercy unto mankind. So even Abu Jahal, uh, I mean, in, in a strange way, if because of the Nabi his name is mentioned in the Quran. You know, so in in a, you know it's in the holy book, but his name is mentioned because of the Nabi So we don't know if Dante would have received any notification in the end. Uh, you know that that his um, his utterances were futile because you can see you know there's a there's a number of instances where people now in the modern age were either going to burn the Quran or bomb the Quran or do something terrible. And when they entered the masjid or when they heard the Quran, it, they became Muslim. So there's plenty of stories like that. So, yeah, well, let's see who laughs, laughs, last, who laughs, last, laughs the best if it is a divine comedy. You know, uh, if I knew about it, I would have made a big hue and cry because my English teacher said, come, come, con, take over, you know, because I knew the Christian dynamics and, you know, how this Christian guy wrote the Pope uh, and he was a Hindu guy. So, you know, he used to find it a bit problematic and so forth. But, uh, yeah, I've only knew that. But uh, now looking at into uh, into that, into another dimension, Ashraf, and also uh, when you look at uh, many other things happening and some of the issues that I see that's coming through, you know, uh, they uh, we talk about uh, these uh, whistleblowers in our country. Uh, 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 you know, not getting joy. I mean, those that have been uh, put away, those that have been killed, 
And if you look at that, the, the, you know, they say that the DA is dismayed by the delay in a presidential proclamation needed to expand, uh, you know, the Tembiza hospital. And we remember that uh, Dio Karan uh, lady was uh, put away because she exposed uh, what was happening there. And also the case of uh, Yusuf Ahmad Didat, the son of uh, Sheikh Ahmad Didat, uh, that case is not solved. Uh, why uh, these types of delays are taking place? Is it uh, because it um, it was done by some people in a higher position or what? Uh, how do you explain this to the layman? You know, they want uh, justice. They want uh, uh, this to be uh, resolved. Why is it not being resolved, Ashla? I think, Shafat, it's clear that uh, South Africa faces a number of problems, not just the load shedding that we're all experiencing. Um, you can see that if you're just talking about whistleblowers, for example, and assassinations, um, I think two days ago, uh, there was an assassination in um, El Dorado Park. No, a week ago on Monday. Yes, yes. Um, An activist there too. Yeah, he's a Muslim gentleman. I think his name was... uh, 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 I forget now. But anyway, so when you listen to the reports, he was trying to get rid of drugs in his area. Ayub Mangali, Ayub Mangali. So Ayub Mangali was assassinated. There was a killing in Durban, and I was horrified to read that you can kill somebody for as little as 2,500 and mm. up to 40,000. Then you remember the top cop, Charles Kinnear, was assassinated, despite his previous warnings that he was a target. Uh, I mean, there was an, a grenade attack as well on his house. So. Does the state have a responsibility to protect all citizens? Yes. Does it have a responsibility to protect whistleblowers? Yes, because they seem to be doing the right thing, uh, exposing uh, corruption and maladministration wherever they find it. I think the slow state, the slow pace that the state adopts in dealing with this kind of crime can only, you know, bolster the the resilience of the criminals. They think they can get away with it. Now, South Africa has got a lot of difficulties and cannot prioritize where to start. You know, do we start with a broken education system? Do we start with fixing up the police? I see the minister is calling for 10,000 more recruits. You know, they've just deployed these cadets or these, um, like they've empowered the CPFs uh, to do a little bit more. But, you know, it's a wealthy country, Shafa. Make no mistake. Now, where is the wealth going to? I mean, how come there is poverty and unemployment for a country that has gold and diamond reserves. It has got, um, you know, two or three operational ports that bring in goods and services into the southern tip of Africa and Guinea. It has massive coal resources, which was converted to oil uh, by way of Cecil. So it's, a, you know, it's, it's astonishing that you could have uh, such divergence in one country. 
So the difficulty we have is that we expect the government, being in governance, to do everything. Um, and it's not going to happen, you know. There are communities fixing up potholes. I read with interest, great interest. Do you know this community since 2019 that has been generating enough electricity to even be able to sell it? And out of 13,000 houses, there were only 65 defaulters. So is there space for us to help ourselves? Um, I think there is. And I think maybe society must band together, as they've done in situations of crises in the past. Uh, in the floods in Durban, during COVID, you could see. And, uh, and now in uh, uh, Pumalanga and Limpopo province, where there's been massive floods, Gift of the Givers has been identified as one of those organizations that have lent a helping hand. So I think society also has a, a part, part to play in Shabbat. We have to take a cognizance of the role that we can play, and we do play, and perhaps concentrate on that rather than saying XYZ has committed a crime, and then you lose your life, and then you can't be, you know, you can't be used, you can't be of use anymore. That's my view. You know, you're talking about your view, and you talk about load shedding, and uh, many are complaining that, you know, people, the food's going off, uh, the insulin that they have, and, you know, uh, uh, many are thinking of uh, suing, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the metros and ESCOM uh, and the government and so forth. Um, many say that the government have uh, their priorities wrong, and uh, they are not addressing the real issue, and many have said that uh, the uh, the democratic the elected government of the ANC uh, was the one that uh, is uh, that you know made sure that ESCOM has come to the stage where it is like a non-functional and so forth. And uh, many are of the opinion that it is done deliberately so that will get other role players into uh, this market of uh, selling electricity, uh, electricity privately. And uh, in the driving seat will be uh, Sol Ramaphosa's brother-in-law Patrick Motsef. And then in the other hand, you, as you said, some people are selling power, uh, you know, to the grid now because they're off the grid and they're generating so much of power. But these are groups like Agri Forum or Afri Forum, uh, you know, Oranya has is self-sufficient. And many say that these are these um, small minorities of a Burmensa that will be monopolizing that market. And then you know what will happen, Ashraf? the blame game will come in again to say, oh, see, look at these apartheid guys. They got uh, the lion's share of the market of selling electricity. What's your thoughts on that whole scenario, Ashraf? See, Shafat, I really don't have a view on it, right? Because I, I basically, you know, I look at facts. I work with facts rather than conspiracies, right? Now, let's take this little, and it's not Orania that I'm talking about. I'm talking about there's another um, little, um, there was another little, I don't know how, what to call it, but a municipality. Yeah, that's right. And they privatized the electricity, right? And it's been successful for more than a decade. So so they were like, they, they took a, they took a 11 year, a 25 year bond and they're halfway into it, right? 
Now, I mean, it's amazing that for 11 years they've existed. They invested 120 million, of which um, they need to invest another 11 million to upgrade. And the the I think it's called a Mafube local municipality. It includes Frankfurt, Villiers, Cornelia, Tuelen. And these are situated just here, south of the Valdem, right? So they they approached this company called Rural Maintenance, and they which said that they will take over the distribution and generation. They've done it. And they said the municipality said there's no privatization here. You're not going to privatize us once you take over. So in fact, they outsourced this thing uh, to the in independent entity. And they've paid 700 million of royalties to ESCOM for bulk, bulk electricities. So what I'm saying, Shafat, somebody decided that this is a remarkable thing to do. And they've done it. So there are lots of, you know, I, I think lots of, um, you know, efforts underway to try and change uh, our circumstances. So what I'm saying is we can't wait for government always to do things, you know. So at this stage, sorry, there's a call. Uh, at this stage, we, 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 we left to, to either sink or swim. Now, as you can see, um, a lot of people are investing in uh, solar, which is now 100% tax write-off. Um, in fact, there's a thing called 12B in terms of the SARS legislation, which says that you can t uh, write off 100% uh, of your bill if you can show that you are investing in solar energy. And there's a few organizations doing this. So again, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, examples of, um, of how you can do things to try and make the difference. Um, you know, not only Mafuwe, but th this company has also gone into Namibia. And, you know, let, let's be honest, Shafat. ESCOM won't really um, back something like this because they sell electricity, right? So they can't be losing uh, income. At the moment, yes, ESCOM has got a problem. It cannot even pay for diesel. But the knock-on effect is... There are billions of rands owing to it from municipalities. For example, the Free State owes ESCOM 17 billion. Now, they can't collect the money and they can't generate the money to go and buy um, the, the diesel. But you know, it looks like we're going backwards as opposed to forward. Because um, even in Europe now, by, by 2030, which is seven years' time, they will no longer have combustion motor vehicles. And South Africa produces a lot of motor vehicles for the world in terms of combustion. So how are we going to change and how are we going to tweak our only reliance on electricity and then creating the new EVs for the European market as well as for ourselves? I mean, you could see 
just this month, I think there were six new hybrid entries into the local market um, from as little as 530,000. I think they're speaking of that, uh, the Haval. But there you have it, you know, that's the reality and it's going forward. So I guess what I'm saying in simple terms, yes, there will be whistleblowers and they'll always be respected for trying to do something. However, they've paid with their lives. What can we do while we are alive is the question. Can we borrow from these examples? I mean, isn't it high time that we put together a Muslim fund to address the needs of our communities? And uh, there are a lot of service providers out there of high caliber. Um, and, and you can actually, with a proper education, like I say, divert your, 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 um, your SARS contributions into this fund. So you don't feel bitter. You don't feel, I'm paying SARS, but I'm getting nothing back. So here's an opportunity to examine what we call the 12B incentives. The beauty of having you, uh, Ashraf, on the show is you make it so enjoyable for me. And I know the listeners are definitely enjoy it too. And Allah bless you for the wonderful knowledge that you have. In your modesty, you don't even uh, brag about it. I know you play very cool. And, uh, you know, looking at uh, there'll be a medley of topics uh, that I'll be, uh, you know, reading out through, to you. And inshallah, you can give your expert opinion on that. And also looking at the Bushiris, uh, or the Bushiris uh, they fled the country to Malawi in November 2020, Ashraf after the Pretoria Magistrate uh, Court granted them 2,000 uh, uh, rand uh, bail each, and uh, they are wanted in South Africa on allegations of fraud and money laundering amounting to 102 million. But uh, the, the irony of the situation is these people, uh, you know, skipped and went across the border and illegally so, but they are still treated in Malawi as celebrities, they're treated with, uh, you know, with kid gloves. And it seems as if the South African uh, government is acquiescing in silence. Uh, what's your thoughts on this, Ashraf? So I think, Shivat, we have to be clear. that is a sovereign government of Malawi. South Africa, outside of the EU protocols, is unable to change domestic legislation or interfere in a court case in that country. Of course, they put in the application for extradition, and that's taking its course. I think they, they, the Home Affairs had debunked a suggestion that uh, somebody had to go and get Viva Voca evidence there. Home Affairs internally had dismissed a very high-ranking official who was involved with Bushiri uh, acquiring permanent residence. That is the basis on which he stayed here. So how Bushiri survives in his country of origin, celebrity or otherwise, is something South Africa can't really control. He's not a convicted criminal. You know, the Dubai, in, in Dubai, the Guptas also lived it up until they were um, arrested in terms of the Interpol warrant. South Africa couldn't really dictate to Dubai what to do and how to do it. A similar case of uh, people that have fled justice is the Bobrovs, um, father and son team that had defrauded um, their clients of millions of rands in RAF uh, road accident fund matters, and they fled. Um, and they exported the, a lot of their, their money to Israel. South Africa couldn't even recover that money from Israel. Barely, but, you know, I think it was 70 million, they only got back uh, a small portion of 19 million, but the other money. So what I'm saying to you, we have limited resources to invest 
in another country. Um, now, you know, it's well known that there are certain powers in, in the world, if they want regime change, they will foster uh, domestic unrest uh, and ultimately leading to the overthrow of that government. I don't think South Africa can ever boast of such resources or intentions. Um, but, you know, it, it has happened around the world. Um, assassinations of foreign heads of states, destabilization, and, and the kind of thing that they want in order to get their way. But I don't think South Africa is that ambitious. Shabbat? No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, for me as a uh, as a layman, like, you know, I say, no, this is this can never be just as a man, uh, you know, went... I mean, he, he left South Africa illegally, uh, Ashraf. That's true. He, and he was, uh, he was assisted by the Department of Home Affairs. I mean, I remember uh, commenting on this on national TV. I said, look, there's one of three things. Indeed, he's a man of miracles because he can disappear and reappear. Or <laughs> he's, he's like Houdini. You know, he could get out. Or indeed, he was assisted in his way out. You know, there was this, this case that there was a, a, a plane that had landed with the ministerial delegation at Patrkloof from Malawi. And there was uh, suspicion that Bushiri would be on the plane. And they dispatched a high-ranking official to uh, Waterkloof. And he inspected the plane and the passengers. And there were some passengers that were not on the original list. And they were told, uh-uh, you're not going to board here. You must go to RT. This plane will land at ORT and then pick you up from the domestic terminals, not the uh, government partner um, uh, group. It's amazing that when they reached uh, ORT, let's say there were five people that had to go. Well, along the way, three disappeared and they never pitched up at ORT. And the government was asked to comment on it. It was shocking. They said, no, it's not uncommon that people go shopping in South Africa instead of going out of the country. So the question then arises, so at, at how, how did Bushiri get out? Now, you and I both know it's not a secret. South Africa got porous borders. You can come and go as you please. So it's not surprising that Bushiri got out. I mean, Shafat, there are people from Zimbabwe that are unable to bury the dead here and don't have funeral insurance. They wrap the bodies up in carpets and they try and smuggle this through the borders. What I'm saying to you, it's not a surprise that fugitives from justice can leave the country undetected. Of course, it requires bribery and corruption along the line. And uh, I suppose a lot of people uh, need to cooperate because let's say Bushiri had a smartphone on him and his movements were detected, which was un which was not um, what the, um, I think the magistrate gave as a bail condition. I don't think he said, hand in your passports. I'm not sure I could be corrected. But if he did, I'm sure that Bushiri and his wife would have been able to leave without their passports, you know, with their, with their passports being in custody. So it's not surprising. It's unfortunate, but not, not surprising. Yeah, and unfortunate, but uh, not surprising. Uh, really, as I said, uh, our show is really gaining impetus here. Uh, this article I, I found rather int intriguing, and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy this. It says, the 
Western uh, Cape High Court has ruled that an advocate who borrowed 2.5 million uh, rands from his friend doesn't uh, doesn't uh, does not have to pay back the balance of 1.5 million as the friend had no authority to loan money under the National Credit Act the NCA the parties were previously close friends now <laughs> oh what is this ashraf now you know your chummy can take you for a ride and there's lots of loopholes where you know uh, criminality is getting away literally with murder ashraf so national credit acts says very clearly shafa uh, i remember doing this some time ago so my memory is a bit rusty around it um you know in order to give a loan you must be registered as a uh, on the national credit um uh, you know you must be registered as a, as a in, a, in in respect of a financial institution so if you are not and you and you give the loan um unfortunately it's unprotected loan so it may in this case as you could see it wasn't paid back the law is correct on that if you give a loan you have to make sure that that is registered in terms of the national credit act and if you don't well you stand to lose you know the second thing is just to add to that shafa is if you basically uh, give a loan and you claim interest on that loan that's when you have to register with the national credit bureau if you don't claim interest it is not affected in terms of the um nca so that was the big difference you see this guy must have claimed interest on the loan and then the the borrower says oh yeah um you know what you claiming that show me that you are registered as a credit and uh, provider and he wasn't so if you don't claim interest you don't have to register as a credit provider that's what i recall would be the principle basis of that act yeah as we go on and in this country you know we talk about the refugees and uh, the people our borders are porous and uh, then we notice uh, that the uh, uh, western uh, once again the western cape high court uh, deputy judge president patricia goliath has declared uh, sections of the refugees act unconstitutional and according to the act asylum seekers who do not renew their visas within one month of date of expiry are considered to have abandoned the asylum the judge said that the essence of the uh, minister of home affairs uh, argument was that most asylum seekers are not genuine and uh, use the process to avoid uh, meeting the requirements of immigration i mean you an expert on this field of immigration and uh, you know all so forth uh, what's your take on that uh, judgment uh, ashraf Look, I think it's a welcome judgment, but the Constitutional Court had already pronounced on this in the Ruta judgment, I think, two years ago. Here, what the asylum seekers um, were saying is that they were automatically declared to have abandoned the application if they didn't uh, uh, if they didn't renew it within one month of it is of it um, expiring. So they were treated as illegal foreigners, and obviously, as illegal foreigners. you are subject to detention arrest detention and deportation so this case um a is um, a um, ngo called sclarabini they launched this application now there's a very important thing that says there 
Um, so, so let me just deal with one thing first. You see, the department's own systems are overrun. Even if with all the best intentions of the, in the world that you went to renew, you could not renew. In fact, they had closed the Cape Town office for a number of years, despite a court order saying you must reopen it. So they made it impossible for people to go and renew. But the judge's uh, concern was very much around uh, the concept of non-refoulement. So non-refoulement basically means that if you say and allege that I'm, I'm liable to face uh, a, a death or detention or torture if I'm be being sent back to my country of origin, you are covered by the international um, concept of non-refoulement. So no court will send you back if you are faced with that. In fact, there was a uh, case of a murderer in Botswana. And he said that he can't be sent back because he'll face the death penalty. And the South African government had to get an assurance from the Botswana government that he will not be facing the death penalty. So the non-refoulement principle basically fell away. But you can see how important that is in the protection of the uh, asylum seekers. You see, it's not just the applicant himself. You know, there are children's rights. So there was another organization called COMSA, and they basically also said that they, the rights of the children also are affected and the court must take into account that what is what we call the paramount, uh, the best interest of the minor child is paramount. It is protected by various conventions, charters, as well as in terms of section 28 of our constitution. So I think it's an interesting judgment, um, you know, because it, it, it also inform, it, uh, it informs everyone that there is a constitutional, uh, 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 there is an objection, or you could say there's a breach of the constitution. However, the way these things work is that there's normally a judgment, and then the um, state is given a period of time in which to fix it up, subject to the Constitutional Court accepting that this was a breach of the Constitution. Um, but I think basically the non-refoulement thing is very important because it recognizes people as human beings and the Constitution protects your right to dignity, not just your human rights. For example, your right to dignity encompasses many things, including the right to family, and the right to family includes the right of cohabitation and marriage. So basically, that, that is the import of the judgment. So let's wait and see how it is um, treated by the Constitutional Court in terms of its confirmation. But definitely a seriously important judgment for people waiting to renew their refugee permits or asylum seekers permits. Uh, gee, you know, asylum seekers, Ashraf, you know, are permitted to work, study, and uh, use uh, social service, and uh, without a valid permit uh, as well. Uh, now, Ashraf, as uh, you know, the children become uh, vulnerable to deportation and so forth. But how do we know who is the genuine asylum seeker to the one that is a fraud or fake, uh, Ashraf? So this is something the department has been, you know, drumming on for years and years that. 95% of asylum seekers are economic migrants. 
and not really fleeing persecution in their countries of origin. However, the department is overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed to such an extent that they created a special dispensation for Zimbabwean and Lesotho and Angolan permit holders, you know, that had come through the asylum route. Um, you know, you know that there's about 288,000 Zimbabweans in the ZDP, and they're also now facing their own challenges in being not able to uh, renew the ZDP, which has been in place for 12 years already. Now, the uh, the Debona decision of about 10 years ago was reaffirmed by the AMA decision of 2019, which says that asylum seekers may work, study, marry, and indeed change their conditions. So previously, they were saying that, no, you can't do all of these things. You basically couldn't even work, study, or do anything like that. However, the Constitution Court ruled then and reaffirmed in the AMA decision that asylum seekers are given all of the privileges of anyone else as part of their human rights. So taken cumulatively, you can see they enjoy a lot of rights, including the rights of not being uh, encamped. However, the 2017 Immigration Act reform that the minister referred to in the ANC-NEC in December and during the SONA, where he said that he's going to employ 10,000 young people to digitize our records, amounting to 355 million pieces of paper. It's very important to note that, uh, you know, the, the department doesn't have the capacity to deal with all of these applications. The United Nations, I think, has said that it's going to take 63 years to try and get through the backlog of asylum seekers. But back to the 2017 no, uh, amendments, they're talking about encampment, Shepa. They're not going to allow asylum seekers mm. just to come into the country. They're talking about encampment at the borders. Now, they've deployed the Border Management Authority, which says that it's had reasonable success in trying to thwart illegal immigration into the country. Um, they say they're active on the borders and they're able to arrest people and take away their vehicles, all, all in terms of the Immigration Act. That if, you, if a vehicle is used to transport illegal immigrants, well, uh, the bus driver or the driver itself might be arrested, the vehicle might be impounded or fined, the owner may be fined. There's a lot of these cases going on at present. So you can see the department is taking steps, but again, until and unless they're able to address the backlog, both in terms of refugee as well as immigration permits. I mean, in terms of immigration permits, they said there's 53,000 immigration permits outstanding. That's a colossal amount. The minister says he's going to get through it by June. Well, we're already on the 17th of Feb, which is like the, the halfway mark. And I don't know how is he going to do 12,000 applications per month. What we see is a lot of rejections. So you can see what I'm saying to you, Shabbat, there are challenges. There are numbers. They cannot help themselves until and unless they're able to, you know, rectify some of the internal shortcomings. And there's a lot of corruption. The minister is getting rid of very high ranking officials. In the minister's words, if he's to break down home affairs to the last screw and rebuild it, that's what he's going to do. So these uh, refugees and asylum seekers, uh, they're funded by our taxpayers, uh, Ashraf? Definitely. As you can see, yesterday there was a report sure. of 2.7 billion a month given in 
uh, grants. Uh, refugees and asylum seekers are entitled to every protection and every right in terms of the constitution. So what are your rights? Right to education, basic health, shelter, uh, you, know, you know what I'm saying, it's there. You can't exclude them. The constitution yeah. applies to everyone within SA's borders. Yeah, I, I mean, education, you, even yeah, the minister, he said that you, you, you must register them as students even without documentation. That boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. And here we have a president that goes all over the world with a begging bowl. Telling we need more money. We need these are money not given as uh, donations. Though. This uh, you know one off. Okay, you take it and you do what you have to do. These are monies that have to be repaid. They have to be paid back by the future generation. And uh, then you sent me a lovely clip, Ashraf, and I do appreciate that because you always keep me informed. You know, talking about the financial system is a fraud. And you know we have a few minutes to go, and I think uh, I would like you to uh, explain that. Uh, you know, just to conscientize uh, the Ummah how this financial system is a fraud, uh, Ashraf? Yeah, so basically, I think what the clip refers to, it's very important, Shafat. I mean, here's what the, what the person says. He says, look, it is a fraud because money is printed at will. If money is printed at will, it means that Whoever owns the printing press owns the world. Now, you'll recall that Alan Greenspan, the past president of the Fed in the United States, which is the monetary authority, he said, he said, we have the printing press. In fact, in the last two years, more dollars have been printed than any time before. So what do we mean by that? You see, until 1973, the dollar was pegged to the gold reserves. Nixon temporarily suspended the gold reserve or the gold standard. Now, Henry Kissinger then went off to the Saudis and he said, you're going to help us. Because you remember like what uh, President Trump said about King Salman. He says, you won't last two weeks without us. So you can see what, what this entails. So if the gold standard does not have any bearing to the number of notes printed, that means you can print as much as you want. Now comes a serious challenge. You see the Russians and the Chinese are now going to be reverting to certain sales of the products in gold. Of course, we know that Gaddafi tried it. Uh, we know that um, Saddam Hussein tried it. And uh, basically, uh, you know, we know, I mean, Iraq was basically bombed into the Dark Ages. Gaddafi was, was basically slaughtered. And now his country is in a mess. So back to why it's a scam. Because... He who controls the print, the printing press, controls the economy. And people don't understand how money is created and printed. And, you know, they believe that the dollar is king, but the United States itself is in debt, Shabbat. 
I mean, there is, um, even South Africa now, uh, every child is born with the debt on its head. So who do we owe all this money to? Who, who, which, which authority, which entity are we borrowing from? Let's take South Africa's borrowing for the uh, COVID. Well, you get it from the World Bank. And the World Bank's arm is the International Monetary Fund. And the IMF will tell you what your policies must read like. For example, before we didn't have tax, then we had general sales tax, GST. GST morphed into VAT, VAT. So any country that is now in debt, including Saudi Arabia has got VAT and all of that. And I think even if it's 5%, the thing is the entire system is flawed because you're borrowing from a single entity. And that single entity will decide all of your um, all of your economic policies. So just look at it, lift your eyes and say every country in the world is borrowing from the same, let's call it central bank or world bank. I mean, it's called a world bank for a specific reason. We all owe this money, but the Chinese are very clever. They came in with the debt forgiveness program in Africa. They're creating huge infrastructure programs. They're creating what the West couldn't do, the Chinese are doing. Very importantly, they came with the um, debt forgiveness, which basically can jumpstart any economy. You know, Shabbat, just after the Second World War, Guernsey had no money. You know, it's one of those Channel Islands that's uh, tax haven. It had no money. They created their own money and they built their own ports and they did what they could outside the financial system. So that's an example of what people are doing, Shafa. You know, Ashrafa, brilliant indeed. And uh, there was, I remember at a stage they said, uh, Turkey owed no one. They didn't owe the IMF a single cent. No, that's not true. Oh, that was a lie then, Ashraf. I mean, you know, the so-called Islamic wow. Republic of Iran yes. also um, okay. has debt on its uh, mortgages for its people. So there's no such thing as Islamic. So that, oh, so that was false news uh, that we heard then. And they've never been forgiven. I mean, mm. the lira is not independent of everything else. They yeah. can dev devalue it overnight. Uh -huh. In fact, the price of bread changes daily in Turkey. Well said. Well said, and that's uh, so. That was a big lie, and then now uh, what I was thinking aloud is uh, that yeah, we know America is a fiat money king of the ca the capital of all, uh, you know, deceit and so forth. But the bottom line is um, this alliance with uh, you know Saudi Arabia, the petrol dollar taken out of the equation because this is a petrol dollar that gives America the license to print uh, paper money at will, and uh, you know. And will, how will America pay itself? Because it, the dollar is America and the petrodollar is America. So they don't owe themselves. They can just run amok uh, with the Saudi Arabia making a U-turn and uh, deciding to join BRICS. How would this affect uh, the American uh, dollar then, Ashraf? See, the American dollar is facing threats from various fronts. And I think you can expect that, um, you know, when they um, are threatened, uh, they they can be quite reactive. Mm. Good example would be uh, the bombing of Japan. I mean, the war was over, 
and they had this uh, nuclear weapon. They bombed the Japanese to smithereens. I mean, you can see just from there that uh, the Americans are not just going to give up. But I think a fundamental flaw we make, Shafak, is believing that America created its own debt. No. Mm. They owe a debt to an independent organization. It's not owing it to itself. It's simply printing the money. I mean, the Federal Reserve is privately owned. And I mean, the world operates on credit. For every rand that you deposit, you allow the bank to lend it out uh, 27 times. And they only need to keep 10%. So for every rand that you deposit, they have to keep 10% liquidity. I mean, you saw what happened in, in Nigeria a few days ago. There were riots because the Nigerian government scrapped um, uh, certain denomination of notes. And they scrapped it because they wanted them to go into digital purchasing. And and all these people were sitting with Uplang and notes and they said, but you don't have enough notes. So, so there was a run on the banks, you see. So that's the difficulty we have, Shafat, with all of these things. We have to revert and ask the question, what does Islam demand and how are we to achieve it? Because these are two separate systems. It cannot be merged into one. Unfortunately, I think the way we approach things today is that is that we're seeing, you know, we're seeing um, the prevalence of uh, like like a new new kind of Islam. It's like capitalism, capital Islam, because all of our transactions are based on these things. It's got nothing to do with the deen in its original pristine form have to get back to basics, Shafat. Well said there, Shafat. Uh, what a beautiful evening in your uh, company. And Alhamdulillah, when you, yeah, when you and your father, please uh, remember us in your pious and sagacious, uh, you know, prayers and thoughts, uh, Shafat. Your parting words uh, this evening. Alhamdulillah, you know, a big night is upon us. Let's take full advantage. Make dua for all of the ummah, all of our people, wherever they are. All of those in need, sickness, you know, may Allah make it easy and grant them all the best wishes. And of course, you know what, Shabbat, we must always have a good opinion of Allah and a good opinion of his creation. Yes, we've seen a lot happening around us, earthquakes and the like, but it's also brought, it's also brought an opportunity to see, you know, the one clip was that the angels were in action. So many people saying that they were fed by uh, angels. I mean, seven to ten days in freezing cold uh, and, and being nourished. So it's given us an opportunity of seeing the other side. Of course, we know there's two worlds, the seen and the unseen. Often we forget the world of the unseen. But the Muslim, he recognizes both. So when you're reading your Quran, know that the angels are with you. When you're making supplication, no Allah is listening to you and accepting your du'as. And we ask for the best du'as for all of us. Ameen Ashraf, and uh, you have a blessed evening ahead. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah we'll continue after that.